Hi, Michaela LaFrac here. The podcast you are about to listen to has been edited for clarity and brevity. This is Vermont Edition. I'm Mitch Wertlieb in for Michaela LaFrac. And today, we're delving into the work of the Vermont legislature. And even this early in the session, there's been quite a bit to parse over. Since getting back to Montpelier in January, lawmakers have introduced numerous bills, including a handful of environmental proposals and two pieces of legislation that would implement higher taxes on wealthy Vermonters. A lot of attention is being spent on the state's ongoing housing crisis, as well as response to last summer's historic flooding. On that front, the House and Senate have already passed a bill relieving municipalities with damages from last year's floods from having to pay state property taxes on some of the impacted locations. To help me break it all down, we have three reporters who have been at the State House talking to lawmakers about all of these moving parts. Joining me here in the studio is Abigail Giles, Vermont Public's climate and environment reporter. Abigail, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Mitch. Also with us in studio is Calvin Cutler, WCAX political reporter. Calvin, thanks so much. Thank you. Great to have you here. And joining us from our Montpelier studio is Lola Dufour, Vermont Public's education and youth reporter. Lola, thank you so much for taking the time. And I know Lola is there somewhere. We're going to come back oh. to it. Hi, Lola. How are you doing? Oh, can you uh, can you hear we me? We absolutely can. And we're just thanking okay. you for joining us today. <laughs> hey, Mitch. And before we delve into all of this, listeners, we would love to have you join the conversation as well. Do you have any questions about any of the bills we're going to be discussing today? Give us a call. 800-639-2211. That's 1-800-639-2211. You can also send an email to vermontedition at vermontpublic.org. Okay, a lot to get to, as I said, so let's get into it. Lola, I want to start with you, and and let's talk about the budget. We know that the governor gave his budget recommendations in January. In a nutshell, he asked lawmakers to please rein in spending. And then late in January, the House passed the Budget Adjustment Bill, known to its friends as BAA. So what is in the BAA? Where does it stand now? Yeah, so the... uh There are really two budget bills each year, and the BAA is uh, the bill that lawmakers pass at the very beginning of the session, and it adjusts the uh, current year, the current fiscal year's budget, right? Because we're halfway through, and now we know, like, well, some expenses are higher than we thought, uh, some expenses are lower, so let's tweak our existing spending plan. Um, The Budget Adjustment Act has already passed the House and is now in the Senate's hands. Um, And, you know, this used to be a really boring kind of sleepy piece of legislation. But in the COVID era, um, it's gotten much bigger, much beefier, much more interesting. Um, And what's in it this year that's, you know, particularly, I think, Relevant is, uh, A, there's an extension to the motel-hotel program for Mm. um, unhoused Vermonters. It extends it through June. So folks that were supposed to be out this spring will have until June. Um, And it also kind of expands um, the the pool of people who are going to be allowed to stay in. Um, And then the second thing that it does uh, is direct about $15 million dollars um, to municipalities to use on flood relief items. There's also 
36 million um, to help municipalities and the state draw down FEMA funds and match FEMA funds for flood relief. That's not very controversial. Um, you know, the governor has uh, also advocated for it. But that 15 million uh, that lawmakers want to use and give to uh, to municipalities, I think is going to, you know, is has been objected to by the governor who is worried, A, that the legislation is a little bit vague about exactly how municipalities are expected to spend this, although the Senate is supposed to flesh out those details. And, you know, the they're also nervous about spending in general. So I think the debates that we're going to see around that extra flood relief um, between the governor and also the House and the Senate, because uh, we have seen a lot of disagreement between the two chambers um, in recent years, particularly on you know spending decisions. Um, and so I think what we see sugar out there is going to tell us probably a, a good bit about what we can expect to see um, in terms of the uh, spending debates of this session. Yeah, it seems like this adjustment really has uh, lawmakers scrambling about a bit and trying to figure out ways to use this money. Uh, Calvin, uh, this bill does add some $68 million from the previously passed budget, and there are some interesting one-time appropriations this money could help fund related to, among other things, retail cannabis. Uh, what can you tell us about some of the potential spending there? Yeah, so Vermont's budding cannabis marketplace, you know, we're a couple of years into it now. And one of the areas, uh, and I think it's worth pointing out that the intention of the market is to have all of our cannabis grown, processed, tested, and sold in Vermont. So we're not shipping or shipping cannabis into Vermont. One of the interesting line items that they're looking for, several million dollars for a state-run testing facility where we can test the cannabis um, here in Vermont. It would be about, uh, it'd be located in the Randolph area is is what we've heard. And, you know, this would put the testing in the state's um, responsibility. And what's really interesting is, uh, I believe it was last year, we actually saw an incident where there were several retail operations in different communities across the state, which had um, had contaminated cannabis and mm -hmm. people uh, were made slightly sick from smoking it. And so this is looking to really kind of uh, address that because ultimately, um, you know, the intention with the, the cannabis legalization bill was to bring uh, producers, to bring, uh, bring growers, retailers, um, that type of thing out of the shadows and into the regulated light and to make sure that it's a safe, effective product that the state can also, um, you know, collect tax revenue off of. So this is an important piece of that conversation. Would they also be testing for things like THC levels, uh, that sort of thing with, with cannabis? And this would be pretty innovative, right, is if, if Vermont goes through with this? Correct. Yeah, we would be one of the only states, to my understanding, that has such a facility. Um, they would be testing for THC levels as well. And, and I'm glad you brought that up, Mitch, because there is also a a concurrent conversation. I don't know if it's going to be um, fully flushed out this year about, you know, should Vermont raise or eliminate the cap on THC levels for cannabis as well? Certainly medical, uh, the Vermont Medical Society and the Department of Health and others have advocated against that. But there are some that say we, we should do this because, um, you know, we, you you want to be able to have control over over the product. So there is certainly a, a difference of opinion there. It is a moving conversation, but that's an important piece of it too. 
And as I understand, uh, it was delayed. The construction of the lab pushed back a little bit because of flooding concerns, right? And yeah. Dealing yeah. with that recovery. Yeah. yeah. Flooding, recovery, construction costs, labor, lumber, lending, you yeah. name it. All I mean, connected. Yeah, it is all connected for sure. Well, to that front, Abigail Giles, the budget adjustment bill, it includes an additional $10 million for flood-impacted towns. Um, seems like a lot of the legislative discussion last month centered around the summer flooding, of course, and the potential for more climate disasters in the future. You've been reporting on a lot of this and following something called the Floodplain River Corridor Bill. What would that do? Yeah, Mick. So um, following this uh, summer's floods, um, and really before that, um, there's been a lot of work around this idea in Vermont. Um, I think with Tropical Storm Irene ending July, we really saw this kind of uh, trickle effect that happens in watersheds in Vermont where management decisions, um, river infrastructure, housing upstream can influence what happens during a flood event in a community downstream. And uh, it's, you know, I think there's a lot of interest in sort of thinking about when we build resilience as a state, how can we incentivize, support, uh, sort of coordinate this kind of watershed-wide planning to think more holistically about what flood resilience means and looks like? Um, so that a community downstream uh, doesn't pay for, you know, a decision made upstream. Um, And so this bill really uh, takes a look at uh, how the state regulates uh, development, new development in flood hazard areas, and river corridors in the state. Um, So essentially a lot of that work had fallen on towns. There was kind of a patchwork approach. Um, And this uh, sort of endeavors in terms of what lawmakers are proposing and wanted to see um, to sort of bring the state into that, that regulation more more uh, sort of statewide. Um, the bill also makes it a policy of Vermont to manage for a net gain of wetlands. Um, and that's really important because uh, wetlands, as we saw with Tropical Storm Irene and communities um, in Addison County, there's some great research there. They have this kind of incredible capacity to sort of sponge up or slow floodwaters. And so there's a desire to kind of protect these ecosystems more uh, broadly in Vermont. Um, There's also a component of the bill that takes a look at how the state manages private dams. Mm. Uh, So it creates a new fund to do emergency uh, restorations um, on dams that are deemed to be unsafe and kind of high hazard in the state. Um, It beefs up staffing for that that program, and it gives Vermonters the power to petition the state to investigate dams if they feel like they've been impacted by flooding downstream or if they feel like the structure might be unsafe. Um, So those are kind of the big proposals there. The administration has had some back and forth with lawmakers over this bill and sort of who should do that regulating at, at, at kind of that statewide scale around development and floodplains. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. Listeners, we have a reporter's roundtable today talking about all the action that's happening in Montpelier. There is a lot of it. If you'd like to join this conversation, give us a call, 800-639-2211. You can also send an email to vermontedition at vermontpublic.org. And again, the number to call, 800-639-2211. There is something I wanted to ask you about, Abigail, as well, I think uh, related to climate. And, and this has something to do with something called the Climate Superfund Act. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, so there's a really interesting bill that lawmakers are working on this session. It's starting in the Senate. Um, and Mitch, it's it's modeled after the, the federal Superfund program. So usually when we think about Superfund, we think about big polluted sites, say a mine or you know a place where there's been industry. Um, since the 1980s, the federal government has had a, a policy where essentially companies that uh, 
created pollution have to pay into a big federal fund, and that supports the cost of, of cleaning up these sites in the sort of public interest. Um, and basically, Vermont wants to kind of create a, a fund like that, but for climate damages. Um, so the idea is to require some of the biggest uh, fossil fuel companies in in the world. This wouldn't apply to say like fuel dealers that we're really talking about companies that refine and extract fossil fuels mm-hmm. to pay the state uh, basically a share of Vermont's climate damages and also the cost to adapt to climate change um, in proportion to how much their products polluted over the last sort of roughly two decades. Um, Lawyers are really excited about this in the environmental sector. They say it's a really good approach. But I think the the big question is going to be um, sort of how does Vermont kind of make these big companies pay up? And just really quickly, uh, New York State has actually done some math already about what this number could look like. Uh, They have estimated that Basically, climate change is going to cost the state roughly $150 billion by 2050. So we're talking really big money here. And, you know, for perspective, I think the latest rough numbers from the administration are that the July floods alone may have cost Vermont uh, upwards of a billion dollars. So, like I said, big numbers. Um, There's a federal bill Senator Sanders has introduced, uh, not expected to go too far in Congress. Um, But New York and Massachusetts are also taking this approach. I'll be fascinating to see what happens from that if that ends up passing. Uh, Lola Dufour, Act 250, uh, you know, there's a lot of attention being paid now for this seminal land use law in Vermont, designed over 50 years ago uh, to protect from overdevelopment. Act 250 reform was on the agenda last year, and it's on the agenda again this year. What can you tell us about it this time around? Yeah, so this is the year that folks kind of agreed we will really talk about Act 250 reform. Um, Some very minor tweaks were made last year. um, And, you know, folks like Governor Phil Scott really wanted to uh, do more aggressive reform then, but uh, agreed to press pause, um, you know, waiting for some studies to come out. Those studies are now out. Um, The administration uh, came out in January with a proposal, which they've gotten, you know, tripartisan uh, support on that would um, make a whole bunch of amendments to the law, um, including its 1055 rule. That's the rule that, you know, you have to subject um, a development to Act 250 review if you're building uh, 10 units within five miles within five years. Um, that threshold is uh, has long been a big topic of conversation. It was, again, very small reforms were made last year. Um, the governor wants to increase that to, to 30 units um, within certain designated areas. Um, he's also got some ideas for, you know, tax breaks um, to certain types of development. Um, so, but, you know, while the governor has some tripartisan support for his, um, for his legislative proposal, we are seeing multiple kind of competing bills come out on this topic and they are very much still in development. So I don't want to go too much into details about them. However, um, it seems like the common thread, uh, is that, uh, everyone kind of wants to look at a tiered system for Act 250, where a version of the status quo would be maintained more or less for, you know, most of the state. Some areas would be carved out for, you know, complete protection, would not be touched or developed. And then some areas, uh, you know, we would see a um, 
a pullback in Act 250 review, right? Uh, but kind of where those lines will be drawn, right, where those boundaries will be drawn is kind of where the debate is going to occur, uh, right? Like how large an area are we talking when we think about pulling back from Act 250 review? Uh, what is that jurisdictional trigger? Um, so these are all of the things that are going to get uh, debated about. Um, you know, we have a proposal that's already coming up in the House. We have another one that is coming out of the Senate Economic Development Committee. Uh, we had wall-to-wall testimony last week in House Energy and Environment. So it's, it is, yeah, going to be a really big topic of discussion this year. Yeah, it definitely will be. We're going to get some to some of your calls in just a moment. Calvin, before we went to break, we were talking a little bit about Act 250. Lola was explaining uh, some of the issues surrounding that. And, you know, she said there there is generally tripartisan support for this. People agree we've got to, you know, do something about the housing crunch and what have you. But has there been any pushback on uh for many of the politicians you've spoken with about getting into this too quickly and, and, and doing too much. Yeah, definitely. I mean, historically, you know, Act 250 at the State House is somewhat of a political third rail, if you will. There is a, a disagreement. Um, you know, even though there is this tripartisan push, there is a disagreement about to what degree Act 250 has, um, you know, created this housing crunch that we find ourselves in. Um, you know, Governor Phil Scott coming from a construction background, um, you know, being being owning his business back in the day um, has said Act 250 is one of and regulation is one of the big hurdles. But we've seen some, including uh, Senator Phil Baruth. I know the Vermont Natural Resources Council and other sort of in the environmental movement have um, kind of raised questions about is that the way is that what's holding us back? Um, of course, as we mentioned, we've got a labor shortage. There's uh, zoning regulations that have, are like also in question. Um, you know, things like uh, short-term rentals. Um, so they they contend that there's other forces at play here, not just uh, Act 250. And so there is somewhat of a, a political disagreement as well. We are taking your calls at 800-639-2211. Let's go to the phones right now. Ted is on the line from Lindenville. Hi, Ted. You're on Vermont Edition. How you guys doing today? Doing all right. Thanks for calling. Right on. Hey, so I'm a local uh, business owner in the Northeast Kingdom. Um, we own a hunting and fishing outdoor sporting goods store. Uh, and I want to talk a little bit about H582, what you guys think of that, um, what you're hearing. And I'm just a little confused about how, uh, you know, some of these, uh, lawmakers or bill writers are expecting uh, normal law-abiding citizens and businesses to uh, comply with some of these. Thanks for that question, Ted. In H582, we're talking here about an act relating to prohibiting possession of semi-automatic or assault weapons. Is that right, Calvin? What can you tell us about that? Yeah, correct. Uh, I So I read this bill earlier in the session. To my degree, my understanding, it hasn't been taken up yet by any of the committees of jurisdictions, but the bill has been introduced um, to the caller's point. It's not a terribly long bill, but you know we'll have to see if it gets any airtime. Um, I think really in the past couple of years, when it comes to firearms policy in Vermont and also nationally as well, the Supreme Court's Bruin decision really has um, you know thrown a lot of policymakers for a loop. Uh, you know, also in some regards, putting um, you know laws that are already on the books in question, like our waiting period, for instance. 
um, you know, that we implemented a few years ago. I know that one's being challenged, <clears throat> excuse me, in, uh, in federal court. So I guess to the, the caller's point, um, I don't know if this is going to be getting any airtime this year. There was a lot of um, a pretty comprehensive gun package that was passed last year, um, which, you know, um, Democrats in the legislature uh, said, OK, we're going to move forward with this. So from what I understand and sort of the feeling that I get in the building, there's more of a, a wait and see type of approach. We've passed these, piece, these pieces of legislation. Let's see what happens with Bruin, with some of these uh, legal challenges that we're seeing for our own laws, but also in similar or other um, laws in, in other states. Is it possible that given all the other bills happening that it, this may not get any action this year? Yeah. I mean, I, I think in terms of um, some session. of the issues that we talk about with health care, um, education, property taxes, climate change, flooding, I don't know if this one is, is a terribly large priority. Listeners, you can join this conversation by giving us a ring at 800-639-2211. That's 800-639-2211. Also, send any questions you may have to Vermont Edition at vermontpublic.org. Lola, in November, the Scott administration came out with a nearly 20 percent average projected increase in property taxes. Uh, This is something that the governor was not at all happy about. The number really made headlines. It got people talking. As listeners may uh, probably know, property taxes fund our schools, our education system. How have lawmakers been approaching that conversation, both in terms of controlling property taxes and properly funding Vermont schools? Right. Uh, Well, they are... They're kind of in fact-finding mode, right? They're trying to figure out how bad the problem is and sort of what their options are. Um, and they're also thinking, you know, there's a there's a conversation we need to have this year about kind of mitigating um, the uh, what's coming down the pike uh, in people's, you know, in the next tax bill that people are going to receive. So there's a short-term conversation. And then there's also a longer-term conversation about education funding that I think uh, this town meeting day could definitely serve as an inflection point on. Um, you know, since uh, that November uh, forecast, well, it technically it was December 1st, but it was sent out a day early. Um, the numbers are actually looking a little bit worse, uh, which uh, I know mm-hmm. is not great news. But yeah, on average, uh, we are looking at presently, you know, if budgets are approved as is, um, at a roughly 20% across the board increase in property tax bills. And this is the the education side, right? You pay municipal property taxes and you also pay uh, school property taxes. Um, there's a lot of stuff that that is going that is driving that increase, right? Um, schools are dealing with the same inflationary costs that all employers are dealing with. Healthcare is a huge one. They're seeing huge increases in their premiums. Um, there's also the retreat of federal pandemic era aid. Uh, schools got a ton of extra money uh, during COVID, and that kind of got rolled into their budgets. Now they're facing kind of a fiscal cliff because that federal money is gone. Um, and then there is also um, this kind of third really important factor, uh, which is this uh a retooling of the education funding formula that was passed in 2022 that's, you know, in effect this year, 
Um, and, uh, you know, education officials are very concerned that uh, a kind of temporary tax break that was built into that law is also encouraging at least some districts to spend even more. Um, anyways, this is all creating kind of a perfect storm. And so, you know, the House Ways and Means Committee, this is the tax writing committee in the House, is kind of taking the lead on these conversations. Um, and they're st- starting to take a look at, you know, what offsetting revenues they can find to at least partly buy down uh, this increase in property taxes. Um, but what we're looking at is, you know, $200 million. That's mm. That's what's driving that 200 uh, sorry, that 20% increase. Um, and, you know, the proposals that they have looked at so far, you know, and again, like very tentatively, um, you know, they've looked at a, a soda tax, they've looked at a candy tax, they've looked at a... Um, a cloud attacks on um, cloud software. Uh, All of these things would raise, you know, if you did all of them, plus, you know, if you added uh, a penny to the sales tax, um, you know, you're looking at raising an extra like 50 million that that kind of softens the blow, but it it doesn't take care of it entirely. Um, Now, uh, lawmakers also sent a letter um, to uh, school boards a few weeks ago. And this was a really surprising letter um, because it is not often that you see high-ranking Democrats, uh, you know, say to schools, you got to spend less money. Please spend less money. Mm. We are in really big trouble this year. Um, And so, you know, we'll have to see if that has an impact. But yeah, the immediate conversation that lawmakers are having is how can we find some other type of money to kind of offset this, you know, basically $200 million increase in in education spending this year, at least to a certain extent. Um, and, you know, no one has coalesced around a proposal yet because uh, raising that kind of money through alternative means is always going to be a controversial conversation in Montpelier. Um, but that's what they're kind of faced with. I mean, that's a daunting and, uh, number, $200 million, you know. And you, like you said, trying to get it piecemeal from other places, you're not going to get that from, let's say, a little extra revenue in retail cannabis or even in sports betting, which is new to Vermont now. You're still talking about, as you're saying, trying to dent that number. But they're not going to get up to that 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 $200 million, are they? Yeah, no, there's no way they're going to buy down the full $200 million. So even in a best-case scenario, um, you know, people's property taxes are going to go up. Uh, a significant amount. And I think everyone is really kind of uh, bracing themselves and curious about what is going to happen on town meeting day. You know, I said at the beginning of this that we're going to see a short-term conversation and a long-term conversation take place. And I think uh, what happens on town meeting, whether or not we see just a handful of budgets go down or if it's, you know, a large-scale um, massacre of school budgets. I think that's really going to impact what that long-term conversation looks like, right? And whether or not lawmakers uh, take that as a mandate to look at really to to look at more aggressive reforms. Hmm. Let's go to the uh, the lines right now. We've got Sam on the line from Springfield. Hi, Sam. Hello. Can you hear me? We can. Yes. 
Hello. Yeah. Um. So my question is: so as a Jewish Vermonter, with uh, what's going on in the Middle East right now, um, I was really like sickened and shocked and appalled when three Palestinian students were attacked in Burlington and like a very senseless act of clearly racist violence. Um, I know some of our congressional delegation has called for a permanent ceasefire, but I want to know why I'm not hearing more about the threat to Arab American lives. As a Jewish Vermonter, I want to know what my elected representatives are going to do to end Israeli apartheid, secure Palestinian dignity and human rights, and end our unlimited uh, military aid to Israel when people in our own state can't find housing. Well, Sam, I appreciate the call. And uh, it's interesting because, you know, you're bringing us back to this this larger world problem, obviously. Uh, there has not been a lot of talk about this, I would imagine, uh, Calvin, at the State House at this time. Yeah, at least as of right now, I haven't heard a lot. Certainly, there have been at least a few lawmakers that have, have been outspoken about it. But in terms of uh, a bigger conversation about passing a resolution or urging our congressional delegation to act one way or the other, um, that's something I haven't heard yet. We did have Representative Becca Ballant come out, uh, I think, a couple months ago, or my, my timing is probably wrong on that, but, you know, calling for a ceasefire, too, after initially uh, resisting that. Uh, yeah, I mean, th- this is news that's hitting all of us. I will say, Sam, and I do appreciate the call, uh, we're going to be following up on this story. It is something that our reporters are working on here at Vermont Public, and we know that it's of concern to, to many people. Uh, throughout Vermont. So thank you for that call. Uh, Abigail Giles, I'd like to talk about bees for a moment. Let's talk bees. You ready for this? Okay. Yeah, There's let's been do a lot it. of buzz around bees, and I'm so sorry. <laughs> I had to get one of those in there. <laughs> uh, last week on the show, Michaela LaFrac hosted uh, about bee populations and how they're faring. There's a controversy over certain pesticides that's, that are used in farming. You've been reporting on a bill to end the use of those pesticides. They're called neonicotinoids. And uh, some other chemicals, too. But I'm interested in this flap over neonicotinoids, and not just because I've been practicing saying it over and over. Why is there pushback over ending its use if this is harmful to pollinators? Well, I just have to say it wouldn't be a mixed villain without a good pun in there. So <laughs> sure. Yeah, it's just got to be at least one, but go on. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, so bees are, uh, and pollinators broadly, native pollinators, too, are facing uh, kind of like a stacked bill of challenges, um, not just in Vermont, everywhere. You know, you've got climate change, you've got pests, you've got disease, you've got chemical pesticides. And so um, beekeepers really went to legislators this year and said, um, and, you know, this has been something they've been asking for for a long time, we feel like it's time to revisit the way that we regulate certain pesticides in Vermont. Um, so as you had mentioned, uh, Mitch, the big the big one this year is neonicotinoids. Um, these are uh, pesticides that really came into sort of prolific use in Vermont uh, in uh, the, the sort of early 2000s is what the department um, the Agency of Agriculture says um, they've been on the rise in use since the 90s nationwide. Um, most uh, corn, I think they said 99% of corn seeds in the state are coated with neonicotinoid pesticides, and most soybean uh, seeds are as well. So this is kind of an interesting, it's a prophylactic use of pesticides. Now, there are some real, uh, really concerning pests that can ravage crops um, that are part of the reason for for this approach. Um, But I think, you know, one challenge is that uh, in some parts of the state, we've heard farmers testify that it's hard for them to find seeds that are not coated. Mm. Um, But 
I think a lot of people, uh, given climate change, given you know concerns about water quality and and sort of all this the stacked challenges that pollinators are facing, um, are really saying, you know, should we be using pesticides like this prophylactically? Um, so that's kind of what this bill takes a look at. Um, you know, we heard some beekeepers testify that they see 50% hive mortality every year. Um, so this is a sector of our agricultural industry that is saying, you know, we feel like uh, we're in a funny place because you know, some farmers have to try to, uh, you know, use pesticides to uh, kill pests that affect their crops and their products. We happen to have um, an an animal that we raise that is also uh, targeted indirectly by those products. Um, so it'll be really interesting to see how this plays out. You know, I think there are some folks in the agricultural community who say, you know, they've sometimes a ban on a, a certain class of pesticides can push them towards something more toxic. So, you know, should lawmakers take a more sort of holistic look at how Vermont uses pesticides? It's a really complicated topic of conversation, but um, one that I think is very prescient right now, given, you know, all the concerns about climate. That's an astonishing statistic. 99% of the corn, you said, uh, using this neonicotinoids? That's according to, um, uh, I think, the UVM extension. Wow. Yeah. Um, a bit of a follow there, uh, Abigail, that lawmakers are also looking at restricting uh, PFAS. And we've learned a lot about these so-called forever chemicals uh, over the years now um, in pesticides, other places. What's going on with PFAS right now? Yeah, so uh, really quick to segue from uh, <laughs> other pesticides. Um, there is a bill that looks to restrict PFAS in pesticides. Um, it's an active ingredient in uh, a lot of chemicals. Uh, PFAS are kind of like these sort of wonder chemicals in some ways. They're really good at, you know, prolonging the life of manufactured products. They're water used in waterproofing. They're flame resistant. Um, and they're also very tiny and very toxic, and they don't break down mm. in the natural world for a very long time. So um, the EPA is looking at these like broader, you know, kind of federal restrictions on pesticides, but has basically come out and said no level of exposure to these chemicals is safe. And at this point, they're just about everywhere in our environment because of our, our the products we use. So so um, there's an effort right now, there's a bill S197 that would uh, restrict pesticides in your PFAS, I should say, in sprayed pesticides. Also looks at the containers pesticides are, are stored in, which can often be a way that they get into pesticides. Um, <clears throat> and then that same bill would also create medical monitoring in the state to try to sort of track the impact on public health of pesticides over time. Um, just really quickly, there's another bill that was really successful last session that is sitting in the House. Um, S25 uh, moves to restrict PFAS um, in personal care products, um, menstrual products, a lot of makeup, uh, things that, you know, disproportionately, uh, you know, women and, and people who identify that way in our state use. Um, and it also moves to restrict them in, in turf. That had tripartisan support in the Senate, which tends to sometimes be a bit more conservative on these issues than the mm. House. So I think that's one that um, advocates are really hoping moves this year. Bonnie is on the line from Hartford. Hi, Bonnie. Thanks for calling. Hi. Thanks. Just It's kind of a, with these Act 250 um, possible revisions, which I think sound like they're more probable, I'm wondering if uh, I, people are going to take into consideration the economic and um, uh, environmental impact on different parts of the country. For instance, in Hartford, Vermont, I know that there would be increased density of housing uh, permitted 
because of our proximity to the interstates and because that's the kind of the nature of the area anyway, kind of a gritty area. But I'm wondering if the wealthy Vermonters in Woodstock and Stowe and uh, these other places will uh, be the ones that will be able to success Bobby to keep their Vermont land more pristine and rural. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you, Bonnie. Appreciate that. Uh, Lola Dufour, did you hear Bonnie's question? And what, what do you think about her concerns there? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, uh, I think so many people probably share her concerns, right? And everyone, most people agree that, you know, we need to do something about our housing, but there's also an anxiety about, okay, like, well, is everyone else going to, um, you know, if I'm okay, if more development happens in my area, am I going to be taking on the burden or are other communities also going to be allowed or are other communities going to be allowed to to not do so? Right. Mm. Um, is this going to be equitable in the way that development happens? Um, and I, I think that that is also a debate that lawmakers will be having as they decide, you know, exactly where to draw the boundaries um, about, you know, which areas are designated for growth, uh, which areas are designated for uh, protection, um, and where, uh, you know, not much happens in, in either direction. Um, and this this kind of, uh, you know, debate around regional fairness and equity is, is absolutely going to factor into that. Calvin, are you seeing a lot of political talk about, about this as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when we talk about, you know, economic equity and making sure that, you know, there's development and, and things like that in Chittenden County and in the northwest part of the state, but then looking at more of our rural communities, Hardwick, um, Craftsbury, um, uh, you know, places in Orange County, fill in the blank. I think there is a, uh, you know, a difference of opinion of, of, you know, what exactly that should look like to Lola's point. But, you know, there, it is a really robust debate that that is happening. I don't know what the uh, what the answer is going to be, and what's yeah. challenging about this is if you can make a tweak to Act 250, and you know we'll we'll see what it looks like. But um, yeah, it's definitely it's an ongoing conversation. Calvin, I wanted to ask about some some sort of uh, I don't know if you'd call them side issues or bills, but there's some related to employment uh, that, that's going on in Montpelier. Uh, lawmakers uh, talking about their own pay for the work that they do representing Montpelier. Yeah, Montpelier. The legislative pay. You know, this is a, a it's a bigger it's a fascinating conversation about. At its core, I think, is the the needs of a changing state and a changing legislature and a growing state. Um, after reapportionment back in the 1960s, we now have 150 lawmakers in the House, 30 in the Senate. And there's this growing conversation about what does it mean to serve in a citizen legislature and what should a citizen legislature look like and how should they be compensated? Because many uh, critics might say that you know lawmaker pay is very low. Um, I think it's... I don't quote me on it, but it's like maybe I think it's like ten or eleven thousand um, for for about five months of work, uh, which is really not not a ton. Um, and so there's this conversation about should we be uh, paying people more and giving them benefits so more uh, so Vermonters that are more reflective of you know the average Vermonter or of our demographics can actually serve in Montpelier. But then on the flip side of the coin, I know Governor Phil Scott, some Republicans, uh, even some Democrats that I've spoken with have also said, well, maybe we should shorten the legislative session or we should um, 
you know, uh, put put a put a cap on it and, and sort of limit how much we can legislate in one year or be more selective in what we legislate. And there was a bill last year that started in the Senate. Uh, the governor vetoed it. And now they're coming back with a new um, uh, a new proposal, slightly watered down, um, doesn't have the same benefits. Um, it would match lawmakers pay at the uh, average Vermont uh, salary. Um, but, you know, it's it, it's interesting to see this play out, number one, in an election year. But number two, there is a philosophical difference here about, you know, what what it means to be a lawmaker. How should those lawmakers be, be compensated? Yeah, that's what I find so interesting because Vermont is a citizen legislature. But to get the citizens who can afford to take that low pay you're talking about is, again, is that a reflective of the population? Yeah, yeah right. Interesting, interesting stuff. Um, Abigail, uh, renewable energy is back on the table this year, as it often seems to be, uh, something called the Renewable Energy Standard Reform. Now, back in 2015, Vermont lawmakers started requiring utilities to purchase or build more renewable energy. So how is Vermont doing in that regard? And how would this bill change things? Yeah, so um, the kind of current standard utilities are working under is a requirement to get 75% of their power from uh, renewables, um, at least you know show that in their portfolio, by 2032. Um, the state's climate action plan, um, some other planning documents have called for the state to push for a 100% renewable um, requirement by 2030. Um, this bill uh, essentially does that for the big utilities in the state and then takes a tiered approach for smaller utilities, you know, we have everything from Green Mountain Power to municipal utilities in Vermont. Um, and it has some new requirements to buy more new renewables. So things in this case built since 2010 um, from in-state uh, or from the New England region. Uh, the administration uh, came forward with a proposal earlier in the session. They wanted to include nuclear. Lawmakers nixed that. Um, but essentially, um, it's kind of this this idea that, you know, in order to decarbonize our regional grid, um, you know, some people are saying we need to have more of those new renewables coming online. Um, there's been some look at how this might impact rates in the future. Um, there's a lot of, there are a lot of questions there. Um, but I think, uh Importantly, this this proposal it continues to allow utilities to keep buying um, big hydro and uh, biomass if they already use that, um, and they have said you know this really helps us kind of keep the pressure on rates down. Um, I think some environmental groups would like to see that go away. Um, uh, not so much the big hydro, but you know I know there's been a lot of conversation in the state about biomass. Uh, so yeah, that's kind of kind of what they're looking at. Yeah, we'll keep watching that one as well. Let's go to the calls now. Uh, Ron is on the line from Barry. Hi, Ron. You're on Vermont Edition. Yes. Uh, hello. Thank you. Sure. Uh, <clears throat> I just wanted to comment on the, the 20% raise in the property taxes. I think uh, um, I deal with a lot of uh, graduates uh, in the business that I'm in, and I think you know they're graduating kids that can't read. They're functionally illiterate. Um, and I think it's shameful. I, mean, I don't know. Um, um, I don't know what the answer is, but keep raising our property taxes. I don't think is the answer. I think the problem is inside the schools. So you're saying, uh, so Ron, it sounds to me like you're saying that uh, property taxes, funding education, is maybe not the way you'd like to see this going. I'm saying the product that they're producing is is uh, is shameful for oh. the money that we spend. Okay. Well, I do appreciate the call, Ron. Um, Lola Dufour, I know you've been following, again, the, the property tax issues, the way we fund our schools. 
Um, how much of a push is there to, you know, do something about the way Vermont, uh, you know, funds education and, and quite frankly, the kind of results that Ron is concerned about? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there actually is a really big conversation happening at the state level about uh, literacy, to Ron's point. Um, there is a growing concern um, in Vermont and nationally, you know, I want to emphasize this is a national conversation that uh, reading uh, that we need to change the way that we teach reading um, and to, you know, follow kind of a newer body of science about what works better um, and one that really emphasizes the use of phonics. So there actually are a number of literacy related bills that are being taken up on the Senate side. Um, so, you know, it, it's absolutely a concern and one that lawmakers um, and the governor has also indicated, you know, they're interested in exploring. Uh, that being said, I think that's a separate conversation um, than the the cost conversation, although I, I definitely understand how, uh, you know, a lot of people are saying we should be getting more from um, from what we are paying uh, but I, you know, I, I don't think that uh, lawmakers are, say, exploring tying test scores to funding. Uh, I mean, we saw that actually happen on the national level a number of years ago, um, and it did not work out well. Um, but again, you know, uh, Ron's, Ron's point is, uh, is really well taken and absolutely a matter of consternation. Calvin Cutler, there's something I wanted to ask you about um, considering uh, publicly funded health care coverage that seems to be gaining some steam in Montpelier. Tell me if I'm wrong about this, but there's a plan to extend Medicaid to thousands of low income Vermonters. What more can you tell us about that? Where would this funding come from? Yeah, I mean, really, there's there's two separate tracks right now happening, two big bills in health care. Healthcare policy this session. One of them has to do with more of uh, politics and regulation and sort of the, um, you know, the power of the Green Mountain Care Board. But the other one, uh, what that's starting on the Senate side. The other one uh, is in House Healthcare, and it's essentially a, a really big expansion of Medicaid and Doctor Dinosaur for for kids, um, pregnant women, um, low and middle income Vermonters. And really, what this bill is trying to do is get at the affordability issue of healthcare. Because uh, healthcare costs have continued to spiral out of control. Uh, some things the state can control, but some things we can't control, like the price of prescription drugs and other things on the federal level. So, what this bill does is essentially it would uh, just infuse um, you know millions of dollars into the state Medicaid budget. And you know there have been some that have raised concerns about. What would that mean? How would we fund this? Um, but really, I mean, it, it's a it's a really big, um, a huge cash infusion. And what it's also meant to do as well is for for seniors and as I said, low and middle income Vermonters to try to uh, help them with what some people call the benefits cliff. Um, you know, trying to uh, you know where, where people may are just eligible for Medicaid or they might make just enough up to it, but they don't quite reach that. So, um, but again, that doesn't necessarily, this bill doesn't get to the root cause or the uh, cost issue. It just helps with the affordability and kind of a, I don't want to say a band-aid, that's the wrong way to put it, but um, it's a big deal, but it doesn't get at the cost drivers. 
What about Vermont's medical establishment? What's there been reaction to some of this so far? Yeah, I mean, it's been, I think from what I can tell, it's been pretty positive um, from, from this bill. I think, you know, there's uh, questions about do we have the provider network? Do we have the workforce to, uh, you know, accommodate for, for several thousand uh, we don't exactly know how many more people will be eligible, but it's it's definitely in the the thousands and thousands. Um, so I think that's one of the big questions. But the biggest question so far has been the cost. What would it mean for the state Medicaid budget? Um, that type of thing. It's amazing how many issues are being bandied about right now. There is so much to talk about. We've gone through almost an hour here, so I'm going to have to wrap this up, unfortunately. But Finally, from all of you, I want to get sort of a quick uh, lightning round here. What are you looking for next? What, what's really interesting for you to come up um, that, that's going to be uh, taken up in Montpelier? And Abigail, let's start with you. Yeah, I think um, something that's interesting to me is this question of, you know, where do we invest our dollars right now as a state? Is it in resilience and adaptation? Is it in mitigation, reducing emissions and our contributions to climate change? I think that's a tension that is playing out in the Renewable Energy Standard Bill. Certainly is a question in some of the flood relief um, and uh, resilience uh, efforts underway. So that's one I'll be keeping an eye on. Okay, thank you. And Lola Dufour, what's what are you looking for next? Well, of course, the big question is, uh, you know, (laughs) what are lawmakers going to do about this big tax increase uh, for property taxes? But the other thing I'm going to be really curious about is uh, the relationship between the House and the Senate. You know, uh, the House is an incredibly progressive body. Um, The Medicaid expansion proposals are coming out of the House. Um, There's also, you know, proposal to – well, there are two bills that would kind of – increased taxes on the wealthy that's also coming out of the House. Um, The Senate is a much more uh, moderate conservative body, even though it is controlled by Democrats. And so I think, uh, you know, how the Senate responds to these proposals in the House is going to be really interesting to watch. And Calvin Cutler, what do you got your eye on? I'm going to say the other half of the healthcare conversation. I think it's fascinating. It's touched just about every single policy arena this year. We are now in year, I believe, 11 or 12 of our healthcare reform experiment into the all-payer model, paying providers a flat fee to try to bring down the cost of healthcare and invest in primary care. We're at a pivotal moment for that that project. And so the question is, what is the vision of that going forward? How many people will we bring into the model? How do we incentivize providers to be part of this model? And ultimately, um, you know, if that fails or if that fizzles out, What's next? There is still a bill um, in the House of Representatives that has uh, close to, if not more than 100 sponsors, which would create a universal primary care, sort of a going back to single payer. So there is still a philosophical difference of how best to deliver health care. So I think that's fascinating, and I've got an eye on it. Wow. I really appreciate everybody's perspectives today. This was fascinating to hear. Abigail Giles, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Mitch. Lola DeFore, thank you so much for your expertise today. Thanks so much. And Calvin Cutler, thanks so much for coming in. Really appreciate it. Thank you.